All right. Welcome back to Omni Shambles, the Daily Beast podcast. Today we have Lachlan Marquet in studio. What an honor it really is to have you here, Lachlan. For you, Sam, it's my pleasure. Okay, thank you. And we have Swin, who's with us, but he's in Columbus at an Airbnb that appears to be next to a police station while he's chopping celery the entire time. So if and you hear- coffee. Oh, great. Yeah, let's get a few more sounds in the background to mess up this podcast a little bit more. If you hear some external audio, it's Swin, who's in an Airbnb in Columbus near a police station. So that's- Coming that's, at you live. <laughs> the Daily Beast, Columbus, Ohio Bureau in sunny, sunny John Kasich country. Out there in real country, interviewing people at diners about how they love Trump, probably, right? And how much they love centrism and John Kasich and how <laughs> civility needs to be restored to this country. Can't wait to read what you produce. All right, we're not going to talk about any of what Swin just said. This week's episode is really like sort of obsessive about Rudy Giuliani. Best man at my wedding, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy had quite the Sunday show experience yesterday. He went on air basically trying to refute a lot of these investigative findings that deal with Michael Cohen, that are looking at a Russia collusion, that look at the Trump business, and he just sort of went at it. And before we get into some of his clips, I want to pose the question to... Let's go with Swin first and then Lachlan. Does Trump like the job that Rudy is doing? So far, for the most part, yeah. I mean, Trump, as with everybody else in his inner circle and political orbit, including his own family members like Jared Kushner, there always is an up-down, up-down function to whether <laughs> you are rising or not in Trump's mind. Sure. But certain missteps aside, and I think we can probably objectively say there have been more Giuliani-related missteps or Trump legal team missteps than even the president would like to acknowledge. Yeah, <laughs> the president, believe it or not, thinks Giuliani is doing a pretty bang-up job, not just behind the scenes, but on TV. And a lot of this, but not all of this, has to do with the simple fact that President Trump really likes Rudy Giuliani. They've been friends, and some would say close friends, for many years. And the president likes his style. So take with that what you will. There, yeah. there really is a Trumpian aspect to Giuliani. Okay, let like, me let me ask you another question then. Is part of the reason he likes Rudy and his style because no one else would do this? I feel like there are very few people out there in the universe who have some sort of legal background, but really it's mostly political background, who are just willing to throw themselves on grenades. And Rudy seems to be one of them. Yeah. Based on people like I've spoken to, one of the things that President Trump really likes about his outside counsel, Rudolph Giuliani, is that he really is willing to sort of go all out in a very Trumpian way on national television and live TV that can sometimes remind the president about his own style of throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks and basically confusing the media into submission, at least for certain spouts of public relations. Swin, you had an interesting interaction with Giuliani last week, and you mentioned missteps in your answer before, and this sort of felt like one of those missteps, and it was a point of confusion, and it ended with Giuliani actually directly addressing you as Mr. Swin <laughs> on the uh, Sunday shows yesterday. I'm honestly still confused about that. I obviously wasn't on that story. So can you clear up what he told you and how it was corrected or addressed and sort of where we stand now? Yes, protect your name, Mr. Swin. Sure, absolutely. And by the way, I have not asked Rudy Giuliani about this, so I don't know for sure, but I would like 
to think that he called me Mr. Swin because I don't think he knows that I'm Thai, and I don't think he knows that my first name isn't Swin, but is actually Aswin. So I am hoping it's because he thought I was like Korean or Chinese or something. Yeah, that's that definitely Swin it. Swin is actually my last name. <laughs> He's actually very well versed in various yeah, uh, exact, Asian yeah. ethnicities. Yeah, <laughs> total pro at distinguishing Asian surnames, Rudy Giuliani. So what happened was for a story last week that actually had to do with AMI chairman and National Enquirer publisher David Pecker and his relationship to Jared Kushner. There was a throwaway sentence or two in there. It was not at all a central part of the story, but it was just Rudy Giuliani saying a couple of sentences to the Daily Beast on the record about Michael Cohen, who, of course, was wrapped up in the whole AMI National Enquirer stuff. Right. So that's the context of why he was there. It didn't have to be the story. But what was in the story was Giuliani telling us about the stuff that Michael Cohen just went down for, the campaign finance violations, that nobody got killed, nobody got robbed. This was not a big crime. Next thing you know, they'll be going after unpaid parking tickets, Giuliani said of the feds, sardonically. So I put that in there because I just thought it was a darkly funny characterization of how Trump's lead attorney on the Russia probe stuff and other federal investigations is spinning this stuff. So we put that in there. And again, this had nothing to do with the story. It wasn't important, but it did manage to catch fire on cable news chyrons and went semi-viral in part because of Sam Stein tweeting it out. I have a pretty, uh, pretty robust Twitter following, if that's what you're trying to get at. Yes. (laughs) And you're very (laughs) humble about it. You know, facts Uh, are facts. I'm just trying to, you know, make sure people know that a lot of people follow me on Twitter. Okay, so Swin writes this tweet. He's taking forever to tell a story. Writes a tweet, it goes viral, and Rudy has to address it by saying, I wasn't really talking about crime being committed and whether it matters or not. What I was trying to do is contextualize what Michael Cohen was doing and up to. Now we want to bring in the big guns here. Lachlan, what is the actual crime that Michael Cohen was convicted of? Essentially, what it is in some is an in-kind contribution to the Trump campaign by an individual and corporate entity well in excess of federal contribution limits. Which that's, are? I what know are the contrib- okay. Okay. What so, are the contribution limits? So per election, an individual is limited in what they can donate to a candidate to $2,700. Okay. So you can donate $2,700 for the primary, $2,700 for the general. So $5,400 per cycle. Okay. If you give services to a campaign at, let's say, below market value, that's considered an in-kind contribution right. to the campaign. If you make an expenditure of money in concert with the campaign in an effort to get some candidate elected, that's considered an in-kind contribution. So what prosecutors say here is these six-figure payments to alleged Trump mistresses Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal were undertaken in concert with the candidate, Donald Trump, in a way that was designed to get Trump elected. The payments came from Trump organization. Well, so this is a point that I don't think has been really clearly fleshed out because very often in these indictments, these corporate entities or individuals are referred to pseudonymously. So it's individual A or B or company A or B. But there was essentially a slush fund that Michael Cohen had. I think it was about $400,000 that he could use to pay these women off. And money in that slush fund came from a corporate entity. It's not clear that it was the Trump organization itself, but it was an LLC or something that Trump controlled. Now, what if it was Cohen's own money? Would that change things? Well, it would sort of change things in that any contribution to a candidate from a corporate entity is illegal, even an in-kind contribution. A corporation cannot give to a campaign. An individual can give to a campaign up to $5,400 per election cycle as long as it's disclosed. This was well in excess of $5,400 and it was not disclosed. disclosed. The interesting potential, I think, you know, something that could have happened that might have made it 
potentially quasi-legal is if, say, a super PAC that was supportive of President Trump had written a check to these women. And if they had done it without, you know, and it wasn't in concert with the campaign. So let's say Michael Cohen goes to America First Action or Crossroads GPS or one of these high dollar <laughs> super PACs was like, hey, we need you to write a $150,000 check to this woman. So she Wouldn't shuts up Wouldn't that be in concert with the campaign though? Because he had talked to Trump about it? Well, but that's really hard to prove. Because this oh, we was have tapes. Well, yeah, that's true. With the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, there might have been a little more fig leaf of legality at the time. <laughs> All right, let me jump to our first bit of idea because this is what Rudy Giuliani was peppered with, among other things, on the Sunday shows, and this is what he had to say about the idea that this was a campaign-related contribution. Let's do audio number one. I can produce an, an enormous number of witnesses that say the president was very concerned about how this was going to affect his children his marriage, not just this one, but similar. All those women came forward at that point in time. That, that uh, tape with Billy Bush and all of that. It's all part of the same thing. And I know what he was concerned about, and I can produce 20 witnesses to tell you what he was concerned Two about. weeks before the campaign. All right, he can produce 20 witnesses ostensibly to say this had nothing to do with the campaign. This was about protecting Melania and his son, and he didn't want to be exposed. Like any man cheating on his yeah, wife wouldn't so want to be exposed. this was the same argument, and you see the Trump legal team going back a lot to the John Edwards case, which right. was actually a pretty similar case. This was two friends of then-presidential candidate John Edwards. It was much further from the election, but it was during an election cycle. Cycle, where these two friends paid off Riel Hunter to sort of keep quiet about their affair. And the Justice Department actually prosecuted that case. And Edwards was acquitted of the campaign finance violation. So the why jury is this different? With him. So this is different because we now have the two other parties to this transaction. Forget about the women themselves, but we have Michael Cohen and David Pecker, who were both integral to both of these transactions saying that these were political payments, that now, this was designed to affect the outcome now, of the election. You didn't have that sort of smoking gun okay, in the words case. Now, let's say theoretically, hold on, Swin. Listen, keep looking for the coffee filter in your new Airbnb, and then we'll get back to you, okay? Let's say they found an email. Wouldn't that be it? Like, they found an email that was like, hey, the campaign's, you know, the election's in two weeks. We got to kill this story. Yeah. Or, you know, that some of these conversations were being recorded. I guess Cohen was recording them. Yeah. So if something like that came out, yeah, that would be a smoking gun. The funny thing here is that let's play devil's advocate for a second and actually take the side of not just Trump, but his legal team and say that, OK, Cohen and Pecker are full of shit. And maybe it was for the election or about the election for them. But for Trump himself, maybe there was something completely different going on. Let's take that argument for a moment. The interesting thing about that is it's actually not totally insane that Trump and his legal team would be staking out this position. I'm surprised it took them kind of this long to make it that explicit. But back in March of this year, one of my Daily Beast colleagues, Kate Bricklay, and I were working on a story regarding Trump and Stormy Daniels and also tangentially related to Karen McDougal stuff. We found that there were several former senior campaign aides to then-candidate Trump who were telling us that during October 2016, post-access Hollywood tape and grab them by the pussy stuff, when all these different harassment and assault allegations were coming out against Trump, they would notice that then-future President Donald Trump would start quizzing aides on the specific dates and timelines right. of allegations that women were making. 
And they started to notice in the heat of October 2016 that whenever they told him a date of an allegation that fell within the time frame of his early marriage to Melania Trump and the birth of their son, Barron Trump, he would start caring more about it and start seeming a little bit sort of nervous about it and start asking them more questions. about it. It's as if Donald Trump was actually worried that he might have been exposed as having an affair while his kid was like months old. Right. And they came to the conclusion, obviously not directly asking Donald Trump about, but they came to the conclusion that he wasn't actually worried about harassment or assault allegations. What he was really worried about was, in the words of one former aide talking to us all those months ago, was, quote, pissing off Melania. I want to jump in here because I have a question for Lachlan. And this has been in the back of my mind. What if the Trump world was able to produce numerous other occasions in which he made hush money payments as an establishment that this was a common practice well within character and therefore really wasn't about a campaign. It's just what he did. Would that be absolving at all? I was actually going to bring exactly that up because they've refused to do that. Giuliani won't answer when he's asked or he may not even been asked, but they haven't come out and said this was a routine thing for the president. He did this all the time. You know, it would be, I think, exculpatory in certain really? ways. Yeah, because you're showing that this type of expense did occur outside of the context of a campaign. And that's really the legal standard is it's only a campaign expense if it only would have occurred in the context of a campaign. In other words, if you would have made that payment, if you weren't running Regardless, for office, yeah. then it's, it's just not, a routine, yeah, it's considered a personal expense. Amazing. It's not a campaign So expense. all Trump has to do to get out of this is find- I used to do this all the time. <laughs> and find someone to be like, yeah, he paid me off. Yeah, okay. and, and, but as Swin says, like he obviously doesn't want to humiliate himself. Yeah. Rudy Giuliani doesn't want to humiliate his client. Oh, man. And so it's this crazy- Exactly. It's kind of painful. So this was not the only thing that Rudy Giuliani was asked to address during his cable news extravaganza. He also was asked about Michael Cohen's pursuit of a Trump Tower in Moscow, because this is another thing where the question is, how much business were they trying to pursue in Russia during the presidential campaign? Now, the key here is to understand this is where Trump was during and right after the campaign himself. Let's play the Trump Russia is a ruse audio. Russia is a ruse. I have nothing to do with Russia. Haven't made a phone call to Russia in years. Don't speak to people from Russia. Not that I wouldn't. I just have nobody to speak to. Okay, that's the baseline. No business in Russia. Don't speak to people in Russia. Don't know any Russians. Have no reason to know any Russians. It is a ruse. Back off. Now, this is, <laughs> this is Rudy yesterday. Let's play Giuliani on Trump Tower. Did Donald Trump know that Michael Cohen was pursuing the Trump Tower in Moscow into the summer of 2016? According to the answer that he gave, it would have covered all the way up to November of covered all the way up to November of 2016. He said he had conversations with him about it. President didn't hide this. They know well, earlier they had said those conversations. All right, the president didn't hide this. <laughs> you know, whether it's on the Cohen stuff or the Trump Tower stuff, I mean the persistent sort of theme here is Trump just always lies about this stuff. <laughs> and this is why it's so hard to take these, well, of course it was a personal payment thing seriously because he's just lied every step of the way. Yeah. And it's the same thing with this Trump Tower project. I mean, it's just brazen. But the bigger thing, at least to me, it's, yes, the lies are pretty brazen. But like, there's a tangible real world consequence to the lying, which is Russian officials knew throughout the course of the campaign and into the early days of the presidency and even further than that, that Trump was lying, right. just straight up lying, and that they could basically prove it. And so he was exposed. They had leverage over him. 
And no one is disputing that. I mean, they're shifting their answers. They're saying, well, and Rudy went on. He said, well, you know, lawyers have to look back and look at the paperwork. And of course, the first answers are never the truth ones. But Trump wasn't saying, you know, I may have. I don't know what the date was. He was saying unequivocally, I had no business with Russia. And therefore, there is severe leverage over Trump. It's not nearly as scatological or as sexy as, say, the mythical P-tape that (laughs) Vladimir Putin (laughs) supposedly had on President Trump. But it is something and it is some substantive dirt. And to use a term you just used, leverage, that senior Russian officials did technically have on then future President Donald Trump. And that's not a small thing. And to have someone like President Trump and his cronies who constantly like holler on and on and on about like Uranium One and Hillary Clinton and all these made up out of thin air things, it's endlessly fascinating to see them keep shruggy emojiing all these things like scandal after scandal. Revelation after totally. Revelation. I think it's fair to say that the walls are closing in a little bit here. We have all these investigations happening, as pointed out by several publications. Literally every entity that Trump's been involved with is now under investigation. So for you guys, and Swin, you could jump in first and then Lachlan, what is the mood inside the administration? They just changed the chief of staff. They got Rudy out there kind of flailing around a little bit. Trump seems to be like kind of losing it on Twitter. Are they just immune to the chaos at this point, or is this a new level? It's sort of funny to me as like a reporter who covers this White House day in, day out, every week, because what you just described, the first thing I thought in my head was, well, isn't that just a week that ends in the letter K in Trump <laughs> world? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like people are listening to this. We go through this at least once a month, maybe more. The reason I'm saying that is because I'm saying this from the position of a reporter, but from the position of the senior officials in the administration and the White House who work with the president every single day, when you talk to them privately, they kind of have a similar professional nihilism to it. Not all of them, but certainly a lot of them, and perhaps most of the people Lachlan and I talk to every week. They are almost numb to it. At this point, if you can't roll with the punch of like a gigantic Trump-shaped explosion on the White House South Lawn every afternoon, and you're working in this administration in the top ranks, you're numb to it. Yeah, from the very beginning, really, of the White House, of this White House, there's been a sense among sort of the rank and file staff of an inability to shape events that affect the White House. And whether that's because Trump himself is so difficult to control, if you're a staffer of his, or the hopes and outcome and fate of this administration really hinges on investigations that Trump hasn't been able to influence, there's a sense that you just need to sort of sit back and roll with the punches. Most folks have become accustomed to having to react to events rather than shape them. Yeah. I mean, I remember covering the Obama White House. By the end of it, you talk to the senior officials there and they'd be like, you know, one of the things I sort of learned over my time here is to separate the news from the noise. The noise is omnipresent and you just need to figure out what actually matters. The difference, I think, about the Trump White House is that it's almost all news. And like, there's a lot of noise, don't get me wrong, but like, this shit is real. And it's not like some of the scandals that hit Obama that were kind of real, but kind of manufactured. This is real shit. And we haven't even got to the point where the Democrats will run the House or Mueller's investigation drops or the Senate investigation drops even. So Yeah, I mean, from the perspective of a senior Trump administration person, they're very proud of their own legislative accomplishments of tax reform, sure. and getting two Supreme Court justices confirmed and this deal with North Korea, et cetera. 
but they feel that no matter what legislative accomplishments they would be able to pass, whether it's things they've already passed or, or things they're looking to pass, that won't change the sort of direness of the things that face the right. administration. Right. That won't sort of help it. I mean, impeachment at this point, you know, I think after this past two weeks, impeachment is obviously looking not just more likely than it ever has. I might give it over 50 percent right now. Wow. That at least the House will vote to impeach Donald Trump. Okay, not um, actual impeachment. Not, not that he will be forced. Of... Not that's correct. The Senate, as long as Republicans control it, will never do that. But there's this helplessness about it because really nothing you can do will change that. What's looking like a more likely outcome. All right. So usually we end the show with a silly game, onion or not onion. And Will Summer thought it was stupid. He told me in the office he thought it was stupid. He said it was too easy. So whatever. Screw you, Will. What we're going to do is a different type of the same game, which is, did Giuliani actually say this? Okay. (laughs) All right. Here's a quote. Now you tell me if this is a real Giuliani quote or if I made it up. Told when in a discussion about how Michael Cohen has changed his story so much four or five times or something like that. Giuliani was told, well, so has the president. And Giuliani says, or did he say, well, the president is not under oath, end quote. Yeah, he said that. Said it. He said it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he actually said that. The president on earth. Okay, that's, yeah, you guys nailed that one. Okay. All right. In a conversation about the settlement payments to Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels, Rudy Giuliani said or did not say the amount of money is consistent with harassment and not truth. You know, when you have the kind of money the president has, usually it's a $1 million settlement. Did he say it or no? I'm going to say no. Swin? Uh, yes, yes. He said that. Yeah, he actually Jesus said that. Christ. No, he really did say that. <laughs> yeah, okay, so last one. When discussing whether Roger Stone gave WikiLeaks a heads up that emails were coming, Rudy Giuliani says, I don't believe so. And then he went on, but if he did, it's not a crime. Yeah, I'll say he said that. Yeah, of course he said that. Yeah, he said that. <laughs> uh, these are all tricks. He said all of them. It's just so unbelievable that he actually said that. I can't help but think of Jeffrey Tambor in Arrested Development. Yeah. Just like, I got the worst <laughs> fucking lawyers. <laughs> Let's just do the last clip, which was the most amazing on collusion. I know that uh, collusion is not a crime. Right? It was over with by the time of the election. All right, so we went from no collusion (laughs) to collusion is not a crime. (laughs) To the collusion was over by the time of the election. (laughs) Obviously it was over by the time of the election. The damage was done. All right, Swin, what do you want to say before we close this up? Well, the problem with all these Rudy Giuliani quotes is, at least for me, and I I know I'm jaded and, like, my soul is blackened by all this, like, Trump news every day, but I can't help but think – of course, Giuliani said this. This isn't even a fun game because all you're doing, as crazy as some of this stuff sounds, is reiterating not just Rudy Giuliani's argument, but Trump's entire legal team's arguments, arguments of Trump's legal teams it's had in past iterations, and the arguments that everybody around Trump, both in and out of the administration, are making, including the president of the United States himself. So we can sort of play these clips and kind of eye roll or laugh at Rudy Giuliani sometimes or the way he says it, but almost always he's just making a quiet part loud and a loud part quiet version of the argument that Jay Sekulow and Emmett Flood are making. 
It's the exact same argument. It's when you fucking killed Joy. I just wanted to play a game and you had to make it all serious. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> all right, listen. That wraps up our latest episode of Omni Shambles. You can find us on iTunes, thedailybeast.com, of course, and Google Play. And as a personal request, go and rate us, but only five-star ratings. We don't accept four-star ratings. If you're going to leave a rating, it has to be five-star and glowing. And you can talk about what a great job I do as host and what a terrible job. Swin is as a guest. All right. Thank you all. Mm. Bye.